Our scripture reading comes from Acts 12, 20 through 25. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persecuted Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, David. My name is Harrison. I'm one of the pastors here at EP. It is a huge blessing that we are able to come back together and worship the Lord together in this place. We're in the book of Acts in chapter 12. We're going to be reading in one of those, or preaching from one of those passages this morning that, um, well, it seems strange because it talks about God, um, well, taking somebody out, so to speak. Uh, that God struck him down and he died, and it was a brutal, ugly death. We need, we need to look at that, though. We need to look at why God did that, what was going on uh, in that. So we're going to look at it from, from uh, the perspective for the first half of our time together, uh, from the perspective of the passage and why God did what he did. Uh, but then the second half of our time, we're going to be looking at the implications of that for us today at EP in 2021. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Father, it is good to come together as a body of Christ. Thank you for letting us do that. Father, I pray that we never, ever, ever take that for granted. Father, I pray that I never take for granted the the opportunity and the privilege to open your word and proclaim Jesus Christ. But Father, I eagerly pray that, um, that this would not be about oration, but about transformation. Father, that you would transform our souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, that you and you alone would be honored and glorified. Father, that you would use the waves of our life to draw us nigh to the shores for Jesus Christ. Lord, use this broken vessel to proclaim your holy, inerrant, infallible, life-transforming gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In his book on prayer, uh, Tim Keller uh, says that to fail to pray then is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. I think, well, that sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? A sin against God's glory. Who would do that? 
uh, I would suggest to you that I would do that and you would do that. This morning as we read that Herod would do that and that God took him out for doing that, we need to um, remember that you and I do the same thing. And we do it in small ways, we do it in large ways, and we are in great, great, great need of God's mercy. By his mercy and grace, we have Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a lack of mercy, though, in the life of Herod. We're going to look at him as, the, as a guy that saw no need for a master. And we're going to look at the fact that God said to Herod, uh, no more, I'm done, I'm done with you. So here's what was going on. A bit of background is important. Uh, Herod uh, had been in this position as ruler uh, over this large territory for about two years, a little less than two years. He had been in, uh, as the, the governor of a smaller territory for about three or four years before that. So altogether, you know, five to six years, but, but over the larger territory, less than two years. And it was starting to go to his head even more. As Nathan opened up for us last week when he, he took us uh, earlier in the, in the, in the uh, 12th chapter of Acts, uh, he noted that Herod was a very cruel individual, that he was a carnal individual that sought his own glory. Uh, he had no, no rules for himself except whatever would pleasure him the most, he would go after. And he was a friend of the emperor of Rome. They had been um, uh, friends since birth. Uh, they were into all sorts of, um, of evil, 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 evil immorality together. So anything that stood in the way of that was something that Herod would want to uh, himself take out and get rid of. Herod, want, Herod wanted to control everything he could control. He saw himself as God, and his way of, of being God was to control those that got in his way. He was in Caesarea at this point. He had been in Judea, and he's come up to Caesarea, which is a part of his province, that was something under his control of one of the colonies of Rome. But up the coast, 60 miles and then another 100 miles, were the, um, the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. So 60 miles and 100 miles up the, court, up the coast. These cities were not under his control. They were under the control of another governor. Herod had the southern end of that, Tyre and Sidon were to the north. As such, they were outside of his control. They were major trading cities. Uh, goods would come in from all over the Mediterranean to Tyre and Sidon, and they would go from there to, to the east on into Asia, uh, to China in that direction, and they would go to the northeast on up into what we might now call uh, Turkey and then Russia and beyond. Tyre and Sidon were huge port cities. And in, in, in many ways, they were greater port cities than Caesarea. So they were rivaling his control. He couldn't get rid of them. Uh, they had also been uh, trading partners with Israel for decades, if not centuries. Uh, Israel, Judea, uh, produced great amounts of grain. They would bring the grain to Caesarea, where it would be stored. Uh, and then Tyre and Sidon would, would send ships down to the port city of Caesarea, they would purchase the grain from the grain merchants and take it back and feed their own people and send it on out into the Northeast and the Far East. Uh, the, um, it was August, uh, the grain had been gathered, the grain had been brought in to the city and it is at this point that we pick up this story. Uh, Herod is angry with Tyre and Sidon, why would he be angry at them? Herod was angry at individuals that got in his way he, the way they were getting his way, as we just mentioned, was that he, they were outside of his control. He couldn't, he couldn't be God over them. 
So he's going to show them. He's going to show them, I am God, and I will make you suffer. So he refuses to give them the grain, and in so doing, he's refusing to show them mercy. He's saying, I will be the one that determines who gets mercy. Now, we know from Romans that God is the one that says, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. God is the God that says, I will be the one that is just and merciful, and, and I will show you those patterns of justice and mercy. In fact, if we go back to Micah chapter 6, in verse 8, we read, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Three parts, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. Herod is saying, I'm going to be the one that determines what justice is, and I'm going to be the one that determines what mercy is, and I'm not going to give mercy to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and to the parts east and to the parts northeast, nor am I going to give justice to all the grain merchants and the grain farmers in the south that are a part of my province. I'm going to be God, and I'm going to refuse justice and mercy. Now remember, justice, as it's defined in, the, in Scripture, isn't is it, um, isn't the punishment of those that have done evil as much as it is doing what is right. So God is the one that is just because God is the one that does what is right. He is the one that is holy. And by him, we have all of our definitions of what is just, what is right, what is holy. Herod is seeking to, to corrupt that in, in, in every way he can. Mercy and justice go together. And Herod has said, I'm not going to go in the direction that God has said we're going to go. I'm going to be God in this way. And so doing, he was, he was taking on the glory of God, a glory that was not his to take on. Who else couldn't he control? He couldn't control the people of Tyre and Sidon. He was being merciless to them. He was being uh, justless to the people that were in his own province. There was someone else he couldn't control, and that was the church of Jesus Christ. We saw earlier in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, that Herod had, had many in the church arrested, uh, and, and one of those was James, the apostle. He killed James. He had James put to the sword. He had Peter arrested because he saw this police, the Jews. And his plan was, uh, no doubt, to have Peter killed as soon as the Passover was done. Again, as Nathan opened up for us last week, if you didn't hear that, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, God freed uh, Peter caused the chains to fall off and Peter to walk out of, out of prison. Herod's plan was, though, to murder Peter. If Herod had been left unchecked, what would have happened to the church of Jesus Christ? Well, as Aslan says, we can never know what might have been, right? We don't know. But he was getting ramped up, and if, if he were to continue in the direction he was ramping up towards, he would have been attacking the church of Jesus Christ, but God took him out. My friends, I've got to ask you this as I ask myself the same question. If we're faced with people that have a great need for mercy, how do we respond? If we're faced with the people that have a great need for justice, how do we respond? Remember, in, in Scripture, God makes it very clear that we're to do justice. And what we saw last, last summer as we walked through the minor prophets is that doesn't mean that we just... Uh, turn a blind eye to it. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we ignore those things that we had no part in personally. But to do justice is to take those that need help and to lift them up, to help them live in a way that is just. 
if, you, if you have struggles with that, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love for you to, to also go back and listen to some of the sermons from last summer or dive back into the Minor Prophets, and we'll find that that, that act of justice and mercy, that definition from God, is throughout that. Micah, or not Micah, but um, uh, Herod has said here that he's not going to do life according to the way God has told us to do life. How do we respond when we're in Herod's position? When we've got the ability to do justice, uh, to love mercy, how do we respond? Yeah. You know, I'd like to think that we're going to respond better than Herod, but the, the fact is that we often don't. I don't. I don't. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And I think we're all in the same boat. Herod was a guy that saw himself as bigger than God. Uh, he, we, we know from verse 21 that on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And he received their praise. Now, that doesn't tell us everything that there is to be told here in the story. The Jewish historian uh, Josephus gives us more details about what was going on on that day. We know from, from Josephus that Herod had taken or had made for himself a royal robe that was woven entirely of silver. So silver had been somehow um, woven into strands and into threads and into cords and that a, a robe had been made out of that. So that when Herod walked into the amphitheater in Caesarea and he stood up and he, 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 he walked in the direction of his throne to sit down and give them an oration uh, as a guide that the sun shone off of him and blinded everyone that was in the room. He was pretending to be uh, a Roman god in that way. And so he received quickly their praises. This is not a man, but this is a god. And God struck him down. We would never do that, right? 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 Sure we would. Sure we would. We do it every time. You do it and I do it. We do that every time that we define what is moral. When we define what is good apart from God. Every time we hear the voice of the Father through his word or the still small voice of the Holy Spirit that is in the, in the believer and we ignore that, we're defining what is good and holy according to man rather than listening to God. And in the doing of that, we are just as Herod was standing up in our own soul and saying, I will be God in this area. Praise God that we have the freedom to repent and come back to Jesus whose arms are open wide and saying, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me. There's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to me. But we do it. I've got to ask, what happens? Um, let's just do a little exercise here. What happens if we have 1,000 people and, and we give those 1,000 individuals a, an assignment? I'll take you back to, to college here or, or high school. Uh, you've got a 100-page paper to write. I think I just lost some of you with that. Okay, you've got a 20-page paper to write. Can we do that? Write it in 14-point font or something, but write a 20-page paper. Write a 20-page paper um, ignoring the existence of God. 
pretending that God does not exist. Write a 20-page paper defining what is good. Define what is right. Define what is holy, ignoring that there is any God. How do you do that? So if we have a 1,000 people writing such a paper, ignoring the existence of God, what we will get are a 1,000 different definitions of what is good and what is moral and what is right. It will not be long before anarchy has taken over and we take each other out. There has to be someone that defines what is good, what is moral, what is right, what is just. There has to be someone outside of us, someone that is timeless. Someone that is omniscient, someone that is omnipresent, omnipotent, someone that is God. We have to have God. Someone has to define that God, that that goodness for us. We have to have a master. There has to be God. Herod was saying to himself and to the people, I will be that God. Which is, it's not just fascinating that he's shaking his fist in the face of God, but in a sense, he's shaking his fist in the face of his good friend, uh, Caligula, the emperor of Rome, who was his boss and had the ability to snap his finger and take him out. God didn't wait on the emperor from Rome to do that. God took Herod out. The passage tells us in verse 23 that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Wow. It was a brutal, brutal, brutal death for Herod. Uh, his death took five days. Uh, he, he died at the age of 54 because he pretended to be God, refusing to give mercy to those that needed mercy, attacking the church of Jesus Christ killing James, putting Peter in prison, and receiving glory from the people that was due to God and God alone. There were others. There have been others. There are others throughout the world, even today, that are pretending to be God, that are withholding mercy that is due to people, that have corrupted justice, that would receive praise as if they are God. Why doesn't God take them out? Why not? Why not? Well, I think we have to define them. Because of them, again, the them really is us. It's you and me. Because, again, just like Adam and Eve, we pretend to be God. Just like Peter in the garden when he took out a sword and cut off the servant's ear. We pretend to be some sort of God. God, though, has given us mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord. And does not hold the sin of those that are believers against them. My friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, first, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. This story of Herod might seem very strange to you. What I want you to catch, though, is that God is very jealous for you. He's very jealous that you understand his justice and his mercy and that you find your hope in your life in him and in him alone. There's a couple other things that we pick up from this. First, there there are places, my friends, where God really does take people out. And we need to trust him to do that. There's times when he doesn't. Maybe you have certain situations in your own life, uh, in the business that you work for, maybe in your family, maybe in your, your, your neighborhood, your extended family, 
wherever you are. Maybe you've seen that and you're experiencing that and people are persecuting you and making life difficult for you. Maybe like making life difficult for you because you're a Christian. And it's hard and you're thinking, Lord, would you take that person out and do away with them? Just get them out of my life. And God's not doing that, is he? Sometimes he does, but in your situation, maybe he's not. I can honestly tell you that there were years that I prayed that God would take my stepfather out. I'm not saying that I prayed God would kill him, but that God would remove him from our family because he was brutal, he was violent, he was an alcoholic. Um, he was a vicious man, and I wanted him gone. You know? And it was right that I wanted him gone. It was right that I wanted this guy to you know, quit hitting my mom and my sisters and style that was a right thing right but God didn't do that God did not do that what did happen later in the man's life is that he became a believer in Jesus Christ and everything changed my mom became a believer my sisters became a believer became believers so 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 God God brought redemption out of that horrible situation but the thing is God does not always take him out so to speak the way he took Herod out Sometimes God leaves them in. And as the song said a few moments ago, those are waves that draw us nigh, that drive us nigh to Jesus Christ where we find our hope. So what are the implications of this for us? Well, I think there's five that I want us to catch. First, we need to see God. We need to see God. We need to see that God is God and I am not. God is God and you are not. There is a God, and he is not us, okay? We have to see that. It's strange that we often hunger not to know God or to have the blessings of God sometimes, even to be loved by God, but instead we hunger to be God. We hunger to be God in the small areas of our lives, in the large areas of our lives, because we want control. We want to make the rules. We want them to, to, be, to be rules that feed us and help us in our own philosophy of life. C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. We need to see ourselves rightly that we are not God. We also need to see others rightly that they are not God. We're all created in the image of God, but none of us are God. There is no political leader that is God or deserves the place of God. There is no leader in a business, no leader in the church that is God. We need to see people rightly and not as God. No one is worthy of our worship. No one is worthy of divine, divine deference. No one. And in, uh, in his book, Good to Great, Jim Collins shows us that even the secular world picks up on that. In that book, he, he mentions um, five levels of leadership. The level five leader is the best leader. Um, that's the one at the top. It's not the one, but the, top, the five is the top. And he says the level five leader embodies a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious, to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company and not for themselves. Level five leaders display a compelling modesty. They're self-effacing and they're understated. Level five leaders look out the window to attribute success to factors other than themselves. When things go poorly, however, they look in the mirror and blame themselves, taking full responsibility. I saw this growing up in Alabama with um, 
a football coach that honestly many looked at as God, uh, Paul Bear Bryant. If, uh, if Alabama won, um, he gave the, the praise and the glory to his players, his, his assistant coaches. And on the rare occasions when Alabama lost, um, I'm not an Alabama fan, but on the rare occasions when Alabama lost, he always put the blame on himself. A level five leader takes the blame on himself. One of the most damaging trends, he says, about leadership, he says one of the most damaging trends in recent history is the tendency, especially by boards of directors, to select dazzling celebrity leaders and to deselect potential level five leaders. Uh, Paul David Tripp, in his book, Lead, which is one of the best books I've read on leadership, Tripp notes that we do the same thing in the church. We still prefer performance over character, and we elevate the performer over the one with the humble character. We still do that. We still do that. Character trumps performance every time. Every time. We see nowhere, nowhere in Scripture where God builds up performance over character. Nowhere. Secular world gets it in some cases. Scripture, of course, teaches us this. Still, sometimes I think we miss it. Keller, in that same book on prayer, says that a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. What that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. God calls us to be people of prayer and humility before his throne. Second implication, first implication, see God. Second implication, surrender. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, very God of very God, the one that we read about in John chapter 1, that through him all things were made and nothing was made that was made except through him. Everything was made through Christ. This Jesus, the one that was with God in the beginning, this Jesus in John chapter 13, we see this Jesus on his knees. On his knees in front of his creation. Knowing full well that every one of those 12 would turn their back on him. One of them, Judas, would betray him. One of them, Peter, would deny him three times. But all of them would walk away would not be there, all of them. Now, they would come back, but there was a time when all of them had walked away. And Jesus is on his knees. And it tells us he's taken off his outer garment. He's taken a basin and a towel. And he kneels before them, and he takes off their sandals. He wasn't wearing latex gloves. <laughs> There was no bottle of sanitizer nearby. These sandals had walked through the dusty streets of Jerusalem, right where the, the donkeys and everything else had walked and spilled 
their stuff. He takes off the dung-encrusted, dust-coated sandals from the feet of his disciples. And then he takes a towel and he washes their feet. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, As I have done to you, so you do to one another. You might look at that and say, where's the glory in that? The glory in that is that there is a suffering servant that loves you to the uttermost. And it's washed not only your feet, but your soul. That's who he's called us to be. Not glory seekers, but suffering servants. Surrender to being a John 13 type of person. Third implication is that we are not gods. We're not even sub-gods or substitute gods or assistant gods. We aren't God's right-hand person. We're not his assistant. We're not the fourth person of the Trinity. He doesn't come to us looking for counsel. He doesn't come to us and say, hey, how do you think I should do this today? He doesn't do that. We might wish he would. I'm sure we've got counsel stored up to give him. But he doesn't do that. We are the body of Christ. And we live and move and breathe together as the body of Christ. We're a community of believers. There's Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and there is his church, which is the bride. And so we do life and we do ministry together. We need each other. We need the community of Christ. Dean Smith, former uh, basketball coach at the University of North Carolina uh, and a believer himself, Said when he would say to his, his players, he said, when you make a basket, you point to the player who threw the pass. That applies to not just basketball, but everything we do. No one makes it through life without lots of assists. We need each other. What Dean would always teach his players. We have to have each other. Fourth, recognize the source of life and all that is good. The source of life and all that is good is God himself. That doesn't mean you don't work hard. You work hard. We're called to work hard. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We read the same kind of thing in Proverbs where we're told to go to the ant or sluggard, see how he works all day. So we're, we're told to work, and all the work you're doing, work as unto the Lord, not as unto man. Colossians. At the same time, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What we have comes from God. Or in James in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Everything we have is from God. So why would we pick up the glory and say, look what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at the things that we've done through me. It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. Jesus gives us everything that is good. The fifth implication is that we are called to be people that worship God and God alone. When we worship God and God alone, there's no place for our own personal glory. Micah 6, 8, let's go back there again. He has told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy, and what else? To walk humbly with your God. That's worship. 
walk humbly with our God. So we dive into his word. We wallow in his word. We immerse ourselves in his word. Like a golden retriever wallows in a mud puddle. Wallow in God's word. Wallow in God's word. If you seek anything, seek the knowledge of God, the intimate knowledge of God. Seek the love of God displayed through his word. Worship by reading his word. Worship by coming together as a community of believers. My friends, when you are absent, the whole body suffers. We live in a world today, and we don't know what it's going to be like after the pandemic, but if it's the same as it was before the pandemic, we live in a world where uh, churches have redefined uh, what it means to be an active member of a church. Uh, it used to be it meant they were, uh, they were there four, four Sundays a, a month, you know, and a couple of Wednesday nights maybe. And then it was three, and then it was two. And now it's if they just show up for a couple of times a month at two different kinds of events. And that's just, that's strange. Can you imagine showing up, being a member of a family and only showing up a couple of times a month? Listen, when you're missing, the whole body suffers. We miss you. We need each other. I pray that one of the things that comes out of the pandemic is that we no longer take the community of believers and the opportunity to worship together. I pray we no longer take that for granted. We worship God by being involved in discipleship through Renew Groups, through missional discipleship, through discipling one another in the gospel. Second Peter Chapter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement, every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's discipleship. God calls us believers to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the final way we worship, I mean, there's, we could unpack that even more, but the final way we worship is through prayer. My friends, God's called us to be people of prayer. As Keller says in the next part of that, that, that we're reading earlier, he said, prayer is awe, it is intimacy, it is struggle. Yet it's the way to reality. There's nothing more important or harder or richer or more life-altering. There's nothing more important or harder or richer or life-altering. There's absolutely nothing so great as prayer. My friends, in all the work you do, pray. There's nothing so important in your life as prayer. Absolutely nothing. With that, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would transform us by your gospel. Lord, that we would not look for glory or gold, that we, but that we would be content with Jesus Christ. Father, and that contentment with Jesus Christ would draw us deeper and deeper and deeper into an intimate relationship with you. Father, would you do this in our midst? Would you do this for us as the church of Jesus Christ? Father, open up our hearts and transform us. 
Lord, where we, where we are hiding from you and pretending to be God, I pray that you'd break that. Father, where we don't even know we're doing it, Lord, open up our eyes, remove the scales from our eyes that we might know Jesus. Lord, take us to a place of worship as the body of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. My friends.